0: Welcome fellow traveler, you are now listening to the Tent Theology
1: Podcast. Each week we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social
0: and political imagination. I would be surprised if
1: listeners to this podcast did not know who Brad Jerzak is. Brad is an author, a pastor, a leader, a counselor. He's all around a lovely good guy who has inspired many people who have been guests on this podcast, as well as listeners to it. He's also been a real inspiration to me, and any chance I get to talk with Brad is a good chance to take indeed. Brad has written many books, but most recently is one called A More Christlike Word, which is a sequel of sorts to The More Christlike God and The More Christlike Way. And here in this book, Brad is talking about the bible and how to read the bible through a christ lens i always enjoy talking to brad and i know that you will enjoy hearing him now let's get on with the show i can see your books in the background how's the pastor doing
0: i i think it i think it didn't take off like i would have hoped but then um The upside is that they've done a Spanish translation and they like went all out on marketing. Okay. In in, in like, they changed the name of it. They said, our marketing says that it will be better if we call it the sign. I'm like, there's nothing in this book about a sign. (laughs) i are like, well, you know, but our marketing says that will sell really well. And then they, (laughs) okay. And then they made the cover, the Spanish cover look like the shack a little bit. I'm like, you know this whole thing's in a psych ward that you've got an outdoor seat. There's like literally no outdoor seats, and then it's got like Paul Young's name, William Paul Young, really big. His his and I'm like, that's good with me. <laughs> <laughs> if if it if it sells, and I know that like um, when Baxter Kruger wrote his book, The Shack Revisited, uh-huh. I don't know what it did in English, but I think it sold three quarters of a million copies in Brazil <laughs> in translation. I'm I'm hoping, but it did what. Paul says this too it's like it did what I needed it to do (laughs) which was for me it was about writing uh, venturing into fiction and so the review the few reviews we have are just very good in the as far as like people writing about how it's brought them healing
1: well well, it's funny isn't it to try and get lightning to strike with books and stuff it's just
0: I know it's so much about luck Yeah, (laughs) it
1: really is (laughs) <laughs> and, uh,
0: like you would know, you have the the best biography of Kierkegaard ever written, but you haven't retired yet for some reason. So that doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Yeah, it did not. It is not. It is not a, what publishers would call a hit, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it's Bizarre. it's been translated. It's in Brazil now as well. It's been translated into Portuguese. So every month, I get I get like texts and emails from Brazilians saying they read the book. So that's fun.
0: Yeah, that is fun. Yeah, I'm going to change my name. Yep.
1: I wanted to talk with you today about uh, the uh, Christlike Word. If that's excellent, cool.
0: yeah, that's what I figured.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, just because that seems to be the thing at the moment. Has it? Is it actually out yet? Because I haven't seen a copy yet.
0: It is funny enough. I I haven't seen a copy personally, but yeah, it's it's out there all over the place now. I'm seeing people holding up their copies, and Amazon released it and. Others as well, Ingram, which is whoever works, I don't, they're the big distributor. So, yeah, yeah. I
1: right, tell us, tell us about the, the genesis of this book. Was it because it's the is it the third in the trilogy of the Christ like trilogy, or what's happening here?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so we had a more Christ like God in which we're saying, look at um, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, and then a Christ like way, and that was about Jesus not only reveals. Um, what deity looks like Jesus is a revelation of of humanity and he's shown us a way to live that helps us become human and then once you figure it out that we have a Christ-like God who's who's given us a Christ-like way that starts raising a lot of questions about the Bible and those who were raised like I was with a fairly like evangelical literalism for example then they start asking questions about, but when God did this, and why does it say that God did that? And these are like very unchrist like things God is doing. And so on the one hand, you may get conservatives who then begin defending the Bible and willing to throw the character of God under the bus. You also have progressives who are setting their si- aside the Bible because they're so offended by it because they're right. still reading it as literalists. But now they just reject it on on those terms. And what I'm doing in, in my book is saying the people who gathered the scriptures and first interpreted them for us, they were very in touch with what I call the Emmaus way of reading. And that is that Jesus showed his disciples on the road to Emmaus that all of these scriptures are about him. Beginning with Moses, the prophets, and all of the scriptures, he shows how they are prefiguring or anticipating his passion and his resurrection. And until you've read scripture that way, which is to say typologically, I suppose you've not yet read it as scripture. I start the book with sort of a memoir of my journey into a crisis around this that led me um to go back to the the New Testament and to the early church fathers and said, "How did they read it the Emmaus way
1: What was the crisis is Is this a spoiler alert if we if you tell us what was happening
0: it's It's not no, it's just that um I've always loved the scriptures since the time my dad got me my first Bible and I memorized the the scriptures and I would highlight what he highlighted. And I, I, you know, I'm seven, eight years old and I had a keen sense of, of even understanding the scriptures after my baptism. It was like, I I remember being surprised, (laughs) but then by the time I probably finished seminary or Uh, I did an MA in biblical studies, BRE in biblical studies, so, you know, six years. And now I've read the Bible so much that I can see the problems. And the crises were around coming to see how a literal approach to some of these scriptures really does call for a genocidal monster God that does not align with Christ in any way. And as long as you read it that way, you're going to need, you'll be in a crisis where either you have to make Christ conform to the monster image. Or you have to find a new way of reading, which for um, conservatives feels like a threat to the Bible. But I want to say I'm, I'm, I have that uh, conservative impulse in spades. So for me, it's not about going off on the end of the, a limb for some liberal reading. It was crawling down the trunk of the tree to the roots of how did Jesus read his, his Bible uh, how does John do that in his gospel? How does Melito of Sardis and Irenaeus in the second century explain how to read the Bible? And the thing is, they do. Whereas I was told in Bible school, it's like, well, we can see that Paul's using allegory and topology, and you can do that in a limited way. But, but really, we were co-opted by modernism.
1: Well, I was going to ask, where, where does this come from? Why, why do people who love the Bible and talk about it all the time, and put it in the titles of their churches, and uh, have Bible, you, you went to Bible college, and you took degrees, and why are all this, why is this culture that loves the Bible so much, so so ignorant about it? Why are they so bad at actually knowing what it is they've got in front of them? Where did that come from?
0: I do think it, it, it starts with modernity, you know, and oddly though, let's say, uh, and by modernity, I mean beginning with the reformers, some of them began eventually to read the Bible in very literal ways, imagining that that was faithfulness. And yet, like guys like John Kelvin are very good at seeing topology. They're like they weren't shy about that at all. And I noticed that among the reformed people whose theology I'm often repulsed by but at the same time, they 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 knew how to look for the gospel in the Old Testament. Now, in the evangelical world, though, I think it really comes to a head when, when you start you start getting challenges to the Bible by the Enlightenment liberals who are treating the Bible as this kind of a pathetic uh, a primitive load of superstition. And so the 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 liberal modernists are looking at the world through this lens of their own literalism, defend the Bible then. And so, but they defend it in that courtroom they become modernists themselves.
1: Right. So they're using modernity, modern tools to fight modern critiques.
0: That's exactly right. So take, you know, the Noah's flood. So someone reads the flood story. Let's say you're a a modern liberal materialist and you read the flood story and you go, well, this is ridiculous. No flood ever covered Mount Everest. Here's the science. So instead of saying, well, of course not, that's not how you read the book as Augustine and the early church fathers would do. The evangelicals went, it did so. And then they try to find science that proves that you can have salt water or, you know, salt in the snow on top of Everest, right? Right?
1: They're using science to beat somebody at the science game. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And losing every time, you know, (laughs) And and I'm saying like... These are non issues to the people who wrote the book, not not just early interpretations, but the actual authors are. You know, they speak phenomenologically, and for for the that's a big word for saying they talked about sunsets or sunrises. Well, we we still do. We're describing what we see from our perspective, and I think either we need to read them through that lens, or even sometimes acknowledge they knew very well that um, these things they were they were speaking of let's say the end of the world as they knew it not the end of the world period
1: I mean what's this is a devil's advocate kind of question but it's also one that I actually (laughs) kind of feel the force of a bit which is the sort of what's at stake why bother like you know it's an ancient two three four thousand year old collection of ancient sheep herders nomadic sheep herders texts uh translated and translated and translated again it tells complicated stories about a wrathful god and there's more than one voice going on and and then there's also some merciful god stuff and then jesus shows up it's kind of like well why bother like why if we've already got a pretty good idea of the way of jesus from the sermon on the mount for example why do we need to go through all the work of making Deuteronomy palatable again.
0: Yeah, I don't <laughs> make Deuteronomy palatable again. That would <laughs> they put be that a on red, a red hat.
1: That is <laughs> <laughs> a red hat for you. <laughs>
0: um yeah, I, I don't know that it's about making Deuteronomy palatable, but I, I would see it in this way. So I do have a premise around inspiration. That's not to say infallibility or around inerrance here, these modern terms. But when I when I look at the scriptures, I suppose um, sometimes we think lo- that logically we get the scriptures and then we maybe uh, learn about God and so But really, mo- most of us, we start with some image of God and maybe we find ourselves in a community, let's call it a church, for example, um, that gathers around their image of God and then we're introduced to the scriptures in that context. Most people, other than Gideon's Bibles in a hotel room, don't most people don't engage scripture unless they're in some faith community that calls itself Christian 99% of people or more so then you have to ask yourself like okay so in this community how how has this community received this text oh this community's received this text as somehow important uh, an uh, to telling our story of how we came to know Jesus even if how i came to know Jesus was you know i I met him in a dream or something. Really, it's like, well, how do I know the Jesus story? I know the Jesus story from the Bible, all right? And then in the context of that story, I've also met, and this is Pope Benedict XVI. He would say this, that the big story of Scripture in which we find Jesus becomes a venue where we actually encounter him and enter a friendship. That's one place where I encounter him. I encounter them elsewhere as well but then okay so then now we have this big story and it's complex and there's lots of books and lots of centuries going on uh, what's the point what's the use well for me it's like if you read the story as a whole like lord of the rings or harry potter or something you don't take one chapter of lord of the rings and totalize it into a theology right you're like no this is this is a story that's going somewhere, and no, I don't like Saruman, but would would the story be better if I removed him? I, I don't like some of those battles. I don't like the intrigue, but but no, this is a, this is our story, and the story's going somewhere. It's an epic saga of redemption that includes the ugly steps getting there, and why that still matters is because, well, the way Paul does it in First Corinthians 10, he sees a lot of these stories as cautionary tales that are still relevant to those of us who keep making the same mistakes. If we could learn to read some of these old stories as they were meant to function, then maybe we would stop, let's say, attributing divine violence to our political agendas like you see all the time right now, right? And it's like, wait a minute, the book of Joshua, for example, was never written as a promotion of genocide and colonialization and divine violence. The author is critiquing that. (laughs) So just because the book is about conquest doesn't mean it's propaganda for conquest. It's actually really calling into question, assigning the name of God to conquest. Well, wow, that's as relevant today as it's ever been when we went off to Iraq.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I, I totally can see how Joshua gets used in very modern day within living memory. I mean, there's people you could send an email to right now who use the Joshua conquest narratives as their justification for doing all sorts of evil things in yep. the name of Christ. Absolutely. Uh, so what? Uh, go on, talk us through how, the, how, this is, how Joshua is a critique of conquest narratives disguised as a conquest narrative.
0: Sure. And I, I also need to do a shout out then to my colleague, Matt Lynch, Uh, who's now out at Regent, and he's written a a new book about this, where just showing how the Bible problematizes these things. They report it to problematize it. Joshua is an easy case, though. If you have time to walk through it, which I do in my book, A More Christlike Word, I have a section where I say, look, in Joshua, you've got one author who is using two narrators. And it's very clear that one of the narrators is is like a government press release doing propaganda for how God is on our side. He promised that wherever we went, we would always win, that we would win quickly, that we have won quickly, and now we have peace in the land. And by the way, here's, here's the tribes that we beat, and he lists them, right? That's one narrator, government press release. But we've also got this pesky embedded reporter, who's a realist. And also in Joshua, that guy speaks up and he goes, actually, God wasn't always on our side. We didn't always win. In fact, these tribes are still around and we're not at peace even to this day. And by the way, here's the tribes we didn't beat. And he names the same tribes. So now you've either got an author who's an idiot, who doesn't understand that in back-to-back chapters almost, he's contradicted himself. Or you have a genius who's brought together two narratives in order to fracture, that's the word Matt uses, he fractures the surface narrative of triumphalism. And why does he do this? It's a, it's a critique of their conquest mentality. And in fact, maybe even if it's written late, like let's say during the exile, it's having to answer questions like, wow, we don't have a country anymore, we don't have an army anymore. Why do we still believe in a God who doesn't always win military victories for us? It's like, well, because that's not the kind of God we worship, you know? So that would be an example where then I I pick it up and I go, the function of this book in the author's mind is to look at how today, listen for the triumphalism in charismatic evangelical American civil religion with a thin veneer of Jesus, and and ask yourself what what does Joshua say to that? Maybe Josh, if we read it carefully, Joshua says, "Oh yeah, you can you can wave your flags and all of that," but look at the peace. How's it going? Did we beat? Did we win in Afghanistan? Did we win in Iraq? Did we win in Vietnam? Did yeah, you win?
1: killed Saddam Hussein how's it looking yeah. for you how's it going yeah
0: now one caution matt would say is it's not just that the second voice is negating the first voice you also have to ask how is the first voice still also true do we have a message of triumph actually we do that christ did come and his triumph he is the new joshua but his victory involved killing nobody his victory was far greater and more beautiful and actually Joshua's victories prefigure the the the, the victory of the cross over death itself revealing that God is not a, this divine conqueror of nations but rather he he's gone right down to the roots of of, of death dealing
1: and is this something that you see throughout the hebrew scriptures and then also i want to talk about the book of revelation as well sure sure i mean is this is this like a key that you can use everywhere or are there some passages that just don't work with what you're trying to to
0: say here you, all all you, well it only works if you read from the end uh as father john bar sa- bear says and so reading from the end means how does our rabbi jesus take us into these texts what does he mean roses moses wrote about me so first, I'll just t- say two things about that. So in specific instances, yes, there's this common thread, even within the Old Testament prior to Christ, of a polyphony of voices, where the chronicler is correcting the author of Samuel, saying, no, God didn't tempt David to count as mighty men. That was Satan. Two very different perspectives. Or as Brueggemann shows in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, he says, you've got a temple, pro-temple voice, pro-temple establishment and you've got anti-temple prophets in the same era and the Jews are so brilliant that they're willing to bring those competing voices together as their sacred text what other what other religion does that I mean they if you've ever seen uh, rabbis debating I got to see this once down in Hebron of all places and and it's just like they they don't have this evangelical obsession with harmonizing every scripture. That's They're...
1: the that's the modern agenda, right? To yeah. harmonize and tell the big story and the, and tie up all the loose ends. Yeah,
0: yeah. Or maybe we could say, okay, we can harmonize, but it's but it's not unison. Yeah, <laughs> you right. Know? right. We're going to bring a B flat into this. So that's what I wanted to say about. Well, on a particular scale, you do you, you see this polyphony of voices creating tensions that require God to come in the flesh to clear it up. The other thing I want to say is, yeah, Melito shows us, he's a just grand disciple of John, like Irenaeus was, and what Melito shows us in his little book on Pascha, it's a sermon, actually. It's a 30-minute sermon, worth reading. It's online. And he just says, look at the Old Testament stories all function as sort of a a prefigurement of whenever you see victory, whenever you see defeat, and whenever you see injustice and betrayal, you're seeing a a shadowy model of, of of the telos or the end or the fulfillment of that in Christ's sufferings and Christ's betrayal by the temple establishment, the injustice of his own people, the Roman Empire, and you're and you're also seeing his the victory of his resurrection. But it's always far greater. And so he he talks about it like an architect makes a little plastic model, a beautiful giant structure made out of pure marble. Well, these these stories function that way. But you can't see it until Jesus unveils it on the road to Emmaus, and and thereafter. Once they see it, they're not imposing a Jesus story onto the Old Testament. It's now they're they're seeing with lenses that clarify what was there from the beginning.
1: So why doesn't, why doesn't Luke pause to actually unpack any of that? I mean, why, why, do, why do Paul and Luke and the others just say, oh, and, and Jesus, is, Jesus showed us how it works, and then they don't, they don't explain it, they don't unpack it? What was going on in the early church? They didn't feel the need to explicate the kind of stuff you're talking about right now.
0: Well, I'm thinking especially, let's say, of, of John, where he's doing this in every chapter. Okay. And it's like really overt. I guess so, Hebrews does it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got like, well, and Hebrews really does it. And and Mark is remarkable because the very first couple of verses of Mark, he takes two Old Testament passages about Yahweh. And then he says, and Jesus did this. And it's like, so for those who don't see the deity of Christ in the writings of Mark, it's there in the first paragraph. Yeah,
1: it's often because we just don't have eyes to see it. It's not because Mark is trying to hide it. Yeah, right. It's just right.
0: like he overtly quotes Isaiah and applies, it, applies a prophecy of Yahweh to Jesus of Nazareth twice. And so, and then John is always doing this with what in the book I call a water to wine interpretation. So the water to wine miracle is an example Well, first of all, it's an illustration of taking the the water out of these ceremonial ritual jars to do with Jewish religion, and uh, it's the new wine of the new covenant. But it's not just a water-to-wine miracle, then. It's a message in itself that John thinks we're smart enough to see. And then he starts applying this and saying so all through his book. So he gets to John 9, he's like, oh yeah, Jesus heals a blind man. What? By the way, this isn't just about physical blindness. This is about spiritual eyes to see and the, the blindness of hearts of the, of his opponents. It's like, oh, okay. And he just like says so. So I, I see it all over the place like that, but especially in books like John and he will do tricky things that, so it's a little bit like reading a Stephen King novel where sometimes he'll explain what he's up to But sometimes he'll just just leave it to you to see it. And if you see it, you feel really clever. Let's say the empty tomb, for example. Matthew, Mark, and Luke locate the angel or men in white or man in white different places on Easter morning. John retells the story, but he's now got the two angels inside the tomb at each end of where Jesus had been laying. And it's this brilliant picture that he wasn't – he saw it himself, apparently – He's not making something up, but he might be telling the story in a way that is reminiscent of the Ark of the Covenant, where you've got an angel on each end of the of the Ark, and he he's doing this stuff all the time and creating rich ironies. So, I, so that's one response to that I would also say that readers in that era had very good education at an elementary level around how rhetoric works, So I have a chapter in my book on um, epistolary rhetoric that is in the epistles an evangelical literalist, I'm picking on evangelicals, because that's my people, that's where I've come from. Um, that's what I did, I, I how I preach. And so we would, we would just have this kind of literalism going on. Um, when we'd read the epistles, we go, well, we know that, you know, we know the Psalms are, are Psalms, we know it's poetry. We know parables are parables. So you have to do some work. But at least in the epistles, Paul's just being straightforward. It's just didactic teaching. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> Actually, highly trained in re- the rhetorical skills that people in his era, in their in their normal part of education, that we we've just not been trained in it.
1: I mean, even it even happens in the Book of Acts. I'm I'm going through a Book of Acts study right now uh, with the 10th Theology people and. know the the, even the book of acts which is supposedly this straightforward report to history is actually filled with socio-rhetorical commentary and
0: it adopts
1: different voices and different different genres and and different characters that they're long speeches that they're not you're not supposed to think that they actually stood there and said that speech the speech is like a representation of a type of speech that was known to those people and it was trying to do a certain type of thing
0: where the speech has an agenda but so does the author in yeah. how he tells the speech and, the... and it's
1: it's where you realize that these texts were a you have to pay attention to they were originally written for an actual living audience in the moment right
0: they, yeah they were
1: incarnated into the into the community into the people it wasn't written for an anonymous group of people 2000 years later to read right it was, yeah. it was written for a group of people that were supposed to get the cues and they were going to laugh at the right places and they were going to understand the illusions and the satire and it's a little bit like us reading a in 2000 years time somebody reading a a political cartoon or something and just like not knowing what what the jokes are meant to be
0: yeah exactly exactly and that's i would say that in the early church then they would describe three layers of interpretation first one was literal but not literalism literal just meant see if we can see those things you're talking about can you see the idiom being being used here? What kind of language, what are they doing with the grammar, all of that? But that's just the first layer. And then then they would say, and then there's a moral layer, not moralist, but moral in the sense of how do these texts function to shape my community and to shape my character into something Christ-like? And then third, the gospel reading of it is how do these texts anticipate or or reflect theologically on the meaning of the life of Jesus. And until you've got that far you're not done reading.
1: What about the book of Revelation then? What's happening in Revelation? That, that that's a very bloodthirsty violent book. How's does Revelation work as I mean is it are there sometimes images of God there that are being presented to us that we're supposed to re- reject from a Christ
0: lens? I think it's more nuanced than that. It, okay. It's probably like Well, I want to say yes. Here's the thing the book of Revelation is replete with Old Testament imagery.
1: Right. Yeah. Which
0: itself was imagery. Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's imagery, people.
1: It's imagery of imagery. Yeah.
0: But when it's employed, sometimes it will take, let's say, a vengeance passage from Isaiah and employ it in as a gospel narrative. So above all, revelation was meant to be a revelation of, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ and his gospel, right? So one example that comes to mind right away is in the Old Testament, when Yahweh shows up and his robes are dipped in blood, it's with the blood of his enemies, because he's conquered them somehow, right? And even that is obviously imagery, but at least it's still probably almost a theology of a divine vengeance john picks that up in the book of revelation and jesus shows up at armageddon but his robes are already dipped in blood like whose blood is it oh his robes are dipped in his own blood and there's a sword he has a sword oh but wait it's the sword that's coming out of his mouth what's the sword that comes out of oh it's it's the gospel you know and so so john himself is using ancient image imagery but turning it on its head and, and it's good to remember, the entire book is visions and dreams. It's like, I hope you didn't wake up this morning and apply all your visions and dreams literally or imagine that they met, you know. So it is apocalypse is a kind of a uh, an important genre that calls us to faithfulness in the face of either imperial persecution or imperial seduction, depending on like so, if if the empire you're living with is persecuting Christians, you need to stay faithful to Jesus, and endure that persecution. But if but if it's really friendly to Christians, you also need to go. Whoa! Remember, it's a beast. Do not sign up for the imperial agenda or marry your church to what the state is up to. Like, I think that's part of the message, and the other is just a call to worship. Really. So the cipher like the code breaker is the lamb. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So I looked and there was a lamb standing there as if slain. Or, oh no, here comes the wrath of God. No, no, it's the wrath of the lamb. What's the wrath of the lamb? That he consents to our defiance and its consequences until we bottom out and call on him for mercy. But it, there, you know what, it's been misused more than it's been well used through the centuries such that the church was slow to include it. I mean, it really doesn't get finally included in the canon until like the the uh, 390s. And I, I think the church ends up saying, no, we think it's authentic scripture, but we they were slow to include it because they just saw the heretics used it more than they did and they abused it worse than, and the Which same is, still is true, true today. today. <laughs> still Absolutely. True today. Yeah. So it's like, maybe we need to, you know, for a time, we need to set that book on the shelf, and, under, and until we just dial down our, our our violence and literalism, oh, now this fall, we're going to be actually teaching through it. Um, uh, John Bear and I, and John McMurray, Paul Young, Cherith Nordling, some of these folks were like, what if we can now, we can take a big enough breath to read it as a revelation of Christ and his gospel.
1: Yeah. yeah. Who's this group? You say you say we're teaching through it. Is this something that listeners could join in on, or is this just yeah. for your yourself? So if
0: they go to opentableconference.com, so there's a group of, of lecturers that kind of, um, we went through the whole book of John last year, chapter by chapter, and we're going to go through the book of Revelation starting in September. So if they go to uh, opentable.com, there's going to be a tab that'll include courses. and and they can sign up. It's, you know, hundred dollars for like 24 weeks with, crazy you know, good. these are yeah. PhD scholars and so on. Uh, all of that. I just adore them. And I think they won't make those kind of silly mistakes that were good for offerings on Sunday nights, but bad for culture and the rep, you know, you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. I, I actually, I, I talked to a guy who said he remembered when he was a little kid and his dad was a, a pastor and they were a very poor family. And they didn't know how they'd make ends meet. And and once in a while, his dad just in defeat would say, well, I guess it's time for another Sunday night series on Revelation. Yeah, uh, right. That brings in the offerings. You know, it was this depressive <laughs> thing. And Wow.
1: Um, talk about taking the mark of the beast.
0: <laughs> oh, there it is, right? So that you I can
1: already. trade, right? You take the mark of the beast so you can trade and carry out your marketplace activities as normal. <laughs> Why did you uh start with Christ-like God and then Christ-like way and then Christ-like word? Why didn't you start with Word
0: Way God or something like that?
1: What what was is there any kind of method to your madness for the order of these three books?
0: Well, I didn't pre-plan a trilogy. Um at the time, uh, I started with a more Christ-like God specifically just because I saw so many people abandoning the faith because they were under uh under you know they had these toxic images of god and i don't just mean like fundamentalist it would be like anybody whose experience you you could have fundamentalist um indoctrination through childhood and come up with a, a monstrous image of god so then your instinct is to reject them but you could also have the same uh you, kind of revulsion if you thought God was absent or silent or distant so let's say you've gone through a terrible experience where you were molested and where was God then so instead of the 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 big uh tyrannical judge now he's just the, the the dad who left the family or wasn't there to help me or you've got and then another kind was this disillusionment where People like I'm gung ho for God, and I believe in prayer, and 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 then something disappoints them, you know, an unanswered prayer, or maybe a, a leader who turns out to be abusive, or what some kind of disillusionment where God didn't meet my expectations, and He's supposed to be a genie in the land, and I rubbed the bottle the right way, and He didn't come out and give me my three wishes. So I just was seeing this stack of all the reasons that people, tens of millions in North America were, have left the churches since, let's say, 9-11. Um, well, I had heard 60 million at one point, but that's a decade ago already. So I'm like, well, if if the first issue here is our image of God and how we become agents of that image, then we better understand that Christ is the image of God. And that's where a more Christ-like God came from. And then out of that, it's like, well, if that were true, how would we live? So a Christ-like way. So after those two books, you start getting a lot of, well, what about this verse? Yeah, right. Exactly. What about? Yeah. And I'm like, well, here's the problem. You don't know how to read the Bible. You know, I don't know if reading this one first now would be better for some people. I don't know if the order even matters. Like, I literally don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe it, maybe it does. Maybe it does. Maybe, maybe it's like it the trinity.
1: It doesn't it, it, the three different trinitarian <laughs> yeah, aspects yeah.
0: might each one might be the one you need
1: at any given moment. Who knows? <laughs>
0: yeah. But the second and third proceed from the first. <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> but, but not temporally. <laughs>
1: so Yeah. And what I mean what's uh you know what's on the kind of um I know that sometimes you do these things with where you, you issue children's books at the same time. Are you going to be doing a children's version of a Christlike word?
0: Um,
1: You are, you are a new granddad. What are you going to do for your, what are you going to do for your granddaughter? Is your granddaughter going to, what kind of Bible is she going to be introduced to eventually?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Like, so I have a, I have a granddaughter who's almost four and she's in Korea, but I imagine her grandparents and mom are, or may, may give her a, Quite a Korean version which which uh, you know that has its own yeah you better get out some
1: translators quickly and get something yeah
0: and then um, and, and then I've just had a grandson who's in Toronto so um, but yeah I, I have other projects on the go first but if I were to do a children's book about this uh, someone's already been helping me think through it and that is uh, a friend of mine named Anna who's nine And she's able to read the Bible very proficiently, non-toxically. It's quite amazing. And I'll just tell you how she does it, because this can help adults. So she starts out, and I kind of trained her in this, but it's her practice of it that makes it work. So John 10.10, that's Jesus. That's a good foundation. Um, Jesus says, it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. I've come that you'd have life. And and so you go, okay, if you believe that Jesus is God, then he's telling you that God is a life giver. And that when you see death dealing, that's the thief. Okay, so now we go read the Old Testament, and we see death dealing, and the narrator may even say, God did that. And so Anna will go, Anna will say, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. So it's not. That means the narrator was confused, <laughs> and then um, because the narrator doesn't know that Jesus, that God is like Jesus, God is always like Jesus. You know, we get this from Brian Zahn's works. God has always been like Jesus, and then you're like, well, then why does why does it say God did it? And then Pete ends comes to the floor, and it's like because God let His children tell the story. Oh, okay. So now she's got. John 10 10, God's life giver, not the death dealer. When the Bible says God did some death dealing, the narrators are confused, but that's okay. God let his children tell the story. Now what? Now we look for Jesus in the story. So here's a crazy example. This is all her. She's reading in the prophets. She sees this siege of Jerusalem. Babylon's coming in, and it's assigning the siege to God. You know, this is God sending Babylon to slaughter his people and jeremiah's crying and and whining about this and, and and she's like well that doesn't sound like what jesus would do cuz god, god god is not a death dealer god's a life giver then where is jesus in the story she writes to me i she goes uh, he's in the tears of jeremiah Rem, and then she goes remember jesus wept over jerusalem too and i'm like wow wow and and she took me right back into i mean this is exactly what what josh abraham joshua heschel said about the book of jeremiah that the revelation of god is in the tears of jeremiah and i'm like here's a nine-year-old with her own so so for her the bible's not a toxic book she had she has like five minutes of hermeneutical prowess that she applies faithfully and she never ends up disillusioned or thinking what a horrible book i'm throwing it away She's relentless. And so if she can do it, A, adults should be able to do it. And B, maybe I could write a a kid's book someday about that. She'd be the star or something like this.
1: We'll put (laughs) her name in big letters, Anna, with with Brad Jerzak in small (laughs) 10 point time.
0: (laughs) I'm her (laughs) ghostwriter.
1: Oh, it's good. Are you able to tell us any of the other future projects coming out? I've never known you not to have at least three books on the go, as far as I can tell.
0: Yeah, I've, um, well, back into it. So a few years from now, I'm going to probably release a book called Unwrathing Scripture, where I take what I do in this book, and I just walk through each section of the Bible and say, here's an example. Um, but that's not going to be released for some years. The The thing I'm doing right now has a working title um, that may t- completely change, but I'll give you the idea. It's It's Out of the Embers. And then the subtitle would be something like "Faith After Freefall," (laughs) or maybe um, uh, "The the Necessity, Possibilities, and Perils of Deconstruction," or what you know, whatever. But out of the embers is basically uh, I have a few things going on in that book, so I'm trying to write it now. I'll get back to it after we're off this call. Um, One section of it, I want to take the the trauma of personal deconstruction very seriously that there's a lot of so-called deconstruction people who are just um, really promoting deconstruction as this wonderful playland of liberation. And I'm like, I get that. It was that way for me on some topics. But there's a toxic positivity in it that is not taking seriously the the very deep traumas that others are going through. And so it's like, they're being bulldozed, not just their faith, but they've become bereft of meaning in life. And I get the direct messages about that. So they're on, they're seeing all these memes on Instagram about how wonderful deconstruction is and And I get those too. Yeah. 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 So it it sounds like it, you know, the, the memes sound like a spotter telling somebody who's doing a bench press, like you're doing it, you're doing it. You're so amazing. And they're like, actually I'm under a steamroller and you're making me feel like I have a bad testimony. It's the evangelical bad testimony thing over here. So I want to just come along and, and name that and say for some people, deconstruction is more like a mastectomy, where you knew a cancer had to go, but you didn't get to choose how much of your breast you lost, of your personhood was amputated in this. Could, could we at least show some empathy? The second part of the book I'm, I'm doing is I, I want to talk about, I've been writing about cultural collapse, you know, so not just an individual who's struggling with faith, but what is what does Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and all these guys say on like a two century sort of um, arc and where are we at in the arc and wouldn't you want to know if if they were prophesying where this is going and and they laid out seven steps and we're in step five do you want to know what six is that what they thought because their track record was pretty good and so, so when, when all a whole culture collapses into Trumpism or whatever, um, or, or like becoming the herd that is just mesmerized by their iPhone all day, like me, you know, like <laughs> uh, what's going on with that? And, and, and then uh, after that, after I've looked at personal and cultural sort of collapses, the, the surprising, inexplicable, almost um, emergence of faith after that where where would we look for that and so I have thoughts like um, I would look at the margins I would look at Howard Thurman and his black theology that maybe it's those who were like the Egypt the Israelites coming out of Egypt or out of exile or occupied territories like with Jesus maybe the people who have experienced that are have something to say about authentic faith. Uh, wh- what does an Indigenous person or a Black person still have to do with Jesus when, should they feel guilty about Christianity just because Europeans colonized them? or? Sl- why? And so I, I'm even noticing and pushing back at how some progr- progressives now are shaming Black faith like learn your history guys these are your it's like actually if they learn their history what they'll find out it was progressivism that drove the slave trade and yes it was a profound hypocrisy that christians would would sign up for that but given the history of progressive ideology uh, I want to say to the First Nations people and Indigenous and Black peoples, you better watch your back if you think the, the progressives are your allies, because they will consign your tradition as they have to the Christian tradition, to the scrap heap. So uh, uh, I, somehow I need to pull it out of the fire at the end, out of the embers at the end, and and, and say, you know, I, I am seeing a profound, authentic faith in certain quarters, and that's who I'm looking to as voices now.
1: Well, there's a kind of a, a history from uh, a lesson from history, like the, the margins. Christendom is always collapsing in the center, and it's always the margins. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of the Irish monks during the Middle Ages, and or, yeah, and then of course the Irish monks settle a form of uh, form a form of Christ- Christendom, which itself def- desperately needs renewing. But in the moment, at the time, right, it was the Irish monks where the real conformity to the way of Jesus was found. And then, and then that became established and then it had to move somewhere else. And I I, I am interested in where the margins are right now. And I think you just identified a few of them for sure. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really good, Brad, where, where can people go? You said that it's out, you said your book is out, but where would you like them to go to get your book? Because we all know there's a few monster uh, <laughs> corporations out there, but uh, is there a way you'd recommend people could get? A more christ-like word
0: you know maybe the best would be to go to their local bookstore and if, and they will probably won't have it yet but they can ask them to order it and it'll be it's in the ingram catalog that local bookstores would be ordering from that'd be one way to do it and another would be they could go right to the publisher's site whitaker house um, maybe they'll have it. I know. I know that the, you know, it's on Amazon and all of those big places and and some people have uh, ethical issues with that. But um, um, uh, because because it's orderable now, mo- stores should be able to get it. And the good thing about that is then it'll bring it into those stores right? It expands the reach then. They should probably have the store order five copies for a home group or something.
1: (laughs) There you go. That's a good idea. Do you still, do you get in trouble anymore for stuff you write? I mean, back in the day, you used to get it in the neck when you would, when you would say something uh, deeply orthodox, which evangelicals thought was heretical.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My original was when I just said, God speaks today. I mean, oh my goodness. That was the worst trouble I ever got in. I know. Um. So (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm always in trouble. I,
1: You're like Borme with all the arrows sticking out of yeah, it.
0: <laughs> my wife always jokes, every time I write a book, she goes, who's going to hate us this time? Um, I think I think maybe those, who, the pop deconstructionists may not like how I push back. But I will say, you know, you don't get more radical than you must be born again. <laughs> or, you know, that's a... Or death and resurrection of baptism is fairly... That's a that's a deconstruction, reconstruction move, if we want to use that language. Also, I kind of annoy people because I just say deconstruction, sick, S-I-C, because the word as it's used today is a misuse of Derrida, who coined it. it in fact, they're doing the opposite sometimes. Um, rather than being mindful, they're just being like Cartesian rationalists, yeah. extreme doubters.
1: Doubt everything. That's well, and... It's like you already mentioned before how uh, back in the day, the m- modern evangelicals would fight modernity with modernity. Well, yeah. you often see this, the pop deconstructionists. They're just they're still evangelicals. They're just they're just evangelicals for a different movement. But they're, they're using all the same tactics. They still have the same individualism. They're still the same capitalist consumers. Uh, they're just doing it for a, for a slightly different <laughs> for a different set of fields than when the, in the old days. For, you, sure. for the you switch sides
0: but not spirits right
1: right and and you do see that and and it's still like those slogans and and they might as well have a poster with an eagle saying he he helps me rise up with wings like eagles but instead they have a poster of somebody who feels free you know a multicolored sheep or something saying i'm free i'm free and you're like well yeah but i don't know if this is going to solve some of the deep existential problems that have come yeah. to us through modern life I, I you're just swapping one form of modernism for another as far as i can yeah, tell
0: yeah you're talking my language man i mean the kite that that cuts its own string and it's like there <laughs> well then i get a message from the kites that are in the trees now tattered up and like they never told me this part <laughs> it's like well okay
1: so for you i mean i'm putting words in your mouth but for <laughs> you it's the, the 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 scripture is is back into the root it's to be rooted back into a, a conversation that's a lot deeper and Wider than just, I don't know, Western liberalism or something like that. Like,
0: right, right, and so uh, an ancient interpretation which includes not making an idol of the Bible, right? Like, so, so the title of the book, a more Christ-like word, is actually my point. My 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 clever thing is, um, uh, I believe that the the Word of God is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. And when he was about eighteen, he grew to grew a beard. You know, Jesus is the word of God. Scripture points to him. Right. Learn how it points to him. Yeah.
1: And it doesn't worship itself. Scripture and doesn't it does worship not, itself. It's not, not the boy. monolith from 2001 that you, everyone has to bow down to.
0: Right. And it's not the third person of the Trinity or something like that. Even um, though
1: it is the third person in your <laughs> Trinity, that, <laughs> your book Trinity.
0: <laughs> no, no. It's still the word. Jesus is the word. There you go. There you go. Okay.
1: I'll let you off. Yeah. I won't write you a letter of complete charging you of heresy i promise
0: <laughs> okay
1: <laughs> oh brad jurzak it's always a joy to have you on this uh on the tent podcast and i'm really glad that you came this time so i better let you get back to your writing because we we, we got to have another brad jurzak book as soon as possible so, yeah. so get back to writing
0: it's so great to see you, and I—I—I I, I guess Merry Christmas if I'm looking in your brightly lit background. Oh no, you shows.
1: see, I—I keep—I keep my Christmas lights up all the time because <laughs> my wife doesn't like them, so they banished. She banished them to my office, so I just, in a fit of defiance, I turn them on every time I'm in.
0: <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs>
1: So every day is Christmas in my office, in the Tent Theology office.
0: <laughs> well, it's so great to be with you. But um, And just, again, a shout out to, to you. Your, the work you're doing is wonderful. If people don't have the Kierkegaard get, book yet, get that fixed. Um, what's your most recent thing?
1: Uh, I'm working on a book right now. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, yeah. I, my most recent thing is a church history book, but I'm working on a new one right now about power. Oh, I
0: have that. That's really good oh thank you yeah
1: but um but uh, right now i'm trying to think about how how do people imagine power and the different ways and i'm thinking about black magic and kenosis and all these different forms of power that we have in the world
0: oh i can't wait i can't wait
1: so i better let you go to write your book and then i gotta go and write mine how about that all right
0: well ha- thanks for having me on we'll see you again soon. oh
1: it's always it's always a joy and right. uh we'll see you soon bye
0: bye To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.